Hi, this is Roberta Fallon, and I'm here today at the Moore College TGMR radio station with Betty Lee Craft. Hi, Betty. Hi, Roberta. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming by. Betty is a wonderful artist. She calls herself Indigenous to West Philadelphia, which I think we're, we want to get into that later. She knows a lot about Philadelphia. She's a fiber mixed media artist and an independent ed educator who's had many grants and accolades from the Leeway Foundation. Uh, she participated in the mural arts programs, Neighborhood Time Exchange. She was a resident artist there. Um, she was a Leeway Window of Opportunity awardee. Um, very many accolades. and. I saw her recently, saw her art at the University City Arts League in a show called High in Fiber, which I thought was a hilarious title for a show of fiber art. And her work looked really spectacular there. Um, what it is, is a combination of fiber options, including some quilting, some sewing, some felting, um, what else? What am I missing? You you just use, you have a lot of tools in your fiber toolbox. Well, with we, regard to that show, and, you know, I really am appreciative to Zoe Cohen and Yvonne Lung for inviting me uh, because it was a really nice variety of um, fiber expression. But in that show, when I was trying to decide what images to send to them, I said I wanted to send something that would represent more than just one aspect of how I create. So uh, sewing, I had to show something that involves sewing. And because I love to dye cloth, I wanted to show that and embellishment. So the smaller quilt embodied uh, hand dyeing, batiking, quilt making, and some embellishment with with bees, so I was able to hit a lot of marks with that one. Uh, and it was called uh, Talking Mass with Cowries. Yeah, I remember the cowries, yeah. Yeah, so um, there were batiked cowries as well as natural ones. And I usually carry at least one for am wearing one because it represents um, ancient African currency. I don't know how many of them would buy you a cheesesteak or anything like that, but um, just the fact that it's a form of ancient um, medium of exchange. And the other piece, uh, which was called Ancient Pathways, um, Song of the Crossroads from a jazz series of felt works. And that piece really speaks about something I didn't learn to do really until around 2003 after my mother passed and I joined the Philadelphia Guild of Hand Weavers. And then I found out that I really wasn't quote unquote a weaver, <laughs> but there was a felt making workshop taught by um, Maris Krasnogor, who I credit as being my first felt-making instructor. And it was like a duck in water because I could take these wool fibers and lay them down and with manipulation and heat 
and um, a lot of playing with color turned them into a non-woven original textile. And that's what really made me go for it, the fact that I could make a textile that would be totally original. Right, with your own stamp on it, not that you have to buy it. Yeah, yeah. so after that, I took a lot of felt-making classes with uh, renowned international felt-makers. And because I was new to that expression, I didn't know who all of them were and what their reputations were. So, you know, Christina White and Jory Johnson and uh, folks like that. And after I took classes with them and others, including Charity Vandermeer, who's um, indigenous to Uganda but lives in the Netherlands, I started to collect an arsenal of techniques. And then I started to put it to work. So this jazz series that I am creating is continuous. And um, I'm starting to find an individual voice with felt making, you know, because of course the thing I would love to do is to be able to work large like Janice Arnold, you know, who did an installation in Cooper Hewitt that took up like an entire room, but you know, you have to know where your limits are. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that I fell into that. So you're, do you take the felt and make wearable things out of it or, is it for your art on the wall? Well, the first thing um, that I made, first two things were actually wearable. You know, because in Jory Johnson's class uh, at a place that was called Cannon Hill, that's way out from Pennsylvania, a farm where they actually have sheep running around, um, I made a beret. And then when Christina White came to the Philadelphia Guild of Hand Weavers, I actually made this bag that you're looking at. I love that bag. Yeah. It, let's describe it. It's two different sides. Well, it's a pouch. It's, it's a, a pouch. It's a pouch. Mm -hmm. And it's double-sided because I found, uh, well, I can do this and make it look like it's two different bags by just flipping it over. So the idea of that particular workshop was to be able to uh, make something that was seamless. Okay, so it's not stitched around the edges? No, it's the way that you manipulate the fibers and you put a piece of plastic or something inside, which is called a resist, which forms a barrier between the two sides so they don't both felt together. Wow. So, um, you know, being able to know how to create a resist in felt making is totally different than the purpose of a resist if you're a dyeing cloth or tying it off to create a resist. Yeah, go into that a little bit because you do do, is batik a resist type process? Yeah. Well, batik is a resist process by using wax. You know, you put the wax down. Uh, there are several methods to be able to do that, but once it's down and you dip the unexposed fabric into cloth, you can re-wax over that color and then dip it into another color. So every place that the wax has um, penetrated, 
means that no color is going there. And so the final thing is to melt the wax off either by ironing it out or when I was in South Carolina with an indigo dye uh, master who had a Nigerian with her who knew that Yoruba method. They had a big black iron cauldron and you would dip it into that steaming, boiling hot water and it would just melt away. You know, so I much preferred that than to ironing where you're using reams of newspaper to get the wax out, but I don't have space for the big cauldron they had because we did that outside. Yeah, I saw Daughters of the Dust, the Julie Dash film, and there were mm -hmm. some scenes, I think, where you could see the indigo, yeah, the indigo pits, pits and the matriarch. Mm -hmm. Now, there are a lot of people that missed this, but her hands were blue. Right. So that pointed to the fact that she had been an indigo artist. And when I visited St. Helena Island, that was about 2001, I actually walked on that beach where the beach scene was shot. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That was such a great movie. Yeah. So atmospheric and great. All right, getting back to your work, um, you've been influenced by Africa and African diaspora artistic practices and global textile practices, jazz, um, African-American heritage, the human condition. You have always in been a teacher outside the um, college, you know, education system, doing independent workshops and whatnot. And I think you enjoy the interaction of teaching people how to do these techniques, yeah? Well, I think what it is is when I first began, because at one point in my life, I had been a substitute teacher in the Get Set program that the Board of Ed had in the 70s. And all of these classes were in churches. And so I would um, go when there was a teacher that was out. <laughs> and they were three to five-year-old kids and I got the chance to be able to engage uh, with them in a different way than their usual teacher because I came with all this artistic stuff. And I would bring my own mm. um, music albums mm. because I had stuff that they could do to the music. Mm. But I had to be careful where I played it since all these things were in churches and some of the women that worked in the daycare, you know, you, you didn't play certain music yeah. in their environment and I found that out real quick one day <laughs> when I had played something by a group called Ohio Players because the kids had to listen for this particular sound which represented a worm and um, I was told very politely that that music uh, was not suitable in their church so I you know of course complied and so we just sang stuff but I enjoy preschool because um, they're, they're not turned off from learning. They're in wonder every day and always want to uh, be about what's next. And so that period of my life um, was rewarding, a rewarding teaching experience, including a therapeutic classroom where I was an assistant teacher at a clinic that dealt with children who were diagnosed very early on 
with some behavioral or learning disability. So that was very special because it was in the neighborhood of the hospital where I had been born, even mm. though the hospital is no longer there, mm. Mercy Douglas Hospital, mm. Southwest Philly. So um, got to do a lot of things with those children. And it was good because they were very needing of special experiences. Talk about um, the element of spirituality and ancestors. They seem to be very much on your mind when you talk about why you're doing things that you do. And Well, I guess um, a lot of that ancestor thing especially is because of those in my immediate family who passed on that gave me uh, a lot of what it is that I do without me realizing that was happening, um, especially my maternal grandmother, Sadie Wills, whose mother had been a professional dressmaker in Vance County of Henderson, North Carolina. So she grew up seeing someone who made their living with their hands. Her father, I understand, was a barber who made his own lotions that he would put on the men's faces, but he was also a cane and rush weaver. Wow. So when I, uh, I'll say, had the privilege to be her caregiver from 1976 to about 1980, we got closer like it was when I was a kid, and I began to ask about family history and things like that. And so one, in one of those days, she told me she was sorry she didn't learn cane and rush weaving. She said, because I know you would have done, done something with it. And uh, probably, you know, probably so. Was it that women weren't allowed to do that, do you think? Or she I wasn't really interested? I really don't know. But after I started looking into it, it looks like it's very hard on your hands. And I could see that as a gender-based job, mm -hmm. definitely. Mm -hmm. But um, my maternal grandmother was my first art teacher. Mm -hmm. And she is the person that put the first needle and thread in my hand when I was an uh, elementary school child. She started me off basically with cross-stitch. You know how you do the alphabet, really simple stuff. But it was generations before that I feel that gift just came down. And I told someone, it, you know, it hit me hardest because somehow or another I feel they knew I was going to carry it forward and develop it much further. And I feel that it's a gift. And every time I make peace, I thank them because I feel that it is because of those that came before that had these kinds of skills. And on my father's side as well is, is the reason why I can do it because my, my paternal grandmother, even though I didn't spend a lot of time with her, they're from Swansboro, North Carolina, which is not far from Camp Lejeune. Um, she had 10 children. She made their clothing, made the quilts, and my Aunt Dorothy, who was also an influence from my father's side, told me that my uh, Grandma Hager did needle lace tatting. Oh, wow. And so she would put these little fancy edges around their very plain undershirts, the girls. 
so that, you know, they would just look a little more decorative and whatever. And um, when I think about how many quilts she might have had to make, it's pretty staggering because another aunt told me she remembered the quilting frame being stored up in the roof of um, the dwelling. Hmm. So none of those quilts, ex you know, really made it because they were used up. And the one I did find out about, I was told, was on the floor of my uncle's garage. And, and I was really, I said, nobody told me, you know, one of those quilts was still in existence. So um, I have to only imagine what her work might have looked like. But I do have a linen bag that she made mm. that has some tatting around the edge, and it's a drawstring, and she actually did some pull-and-drawn work with the embroidery in those negative spaces. So I do have one thing that she actually made. So there's artistry and craftsmanship on both sides of your family going back. Yeah, I would say, because my grandmother told me that um, because her mother used a treadle machine, her legs would get tired. And one of her jobs as a small girl was to get down there and push that treadle and keep it going. I said, yeah, I mean, a deadline is a deadline. It doesn't matter the period of history you're in. You know, if Miss Brown's dress for Sunday was supposed to be ready by Friday or Saturday, it had to be ready. So um, I can safely say that, yeah, that acorn didn't fall too far <laughs> from the tree, but it skipped my mother entirely. Did it? My first cousin and my sister were creative, but they didn't keep that going. So you kind of have a mission. I think you feel connected to the people that taught you, and that helps give your work an impetus to keep it in the world and keep experimenting because mm -hmm. you're not just following in their footsteps, but you're branching out into new areas and yeah. experimenting yourself. Well, I guess I feel that I was able to rekindle what would have been lost in terms of those kinds of um, textile and needle traditions. And it's almost like being uh, a custodian, maybe like a cultural custodian for things that had existed in your family, even though you may not be doing the same things and you have the respect for that traditional work that might have been done you're taking it, I'm taking it to another place because my expression is contemporary, but it's with them in mind. It's with them in mind. So anything I make, even if it's not in a statement, it is implied that I'm honoring what they have given me. Beautiful, beautiful statement. Um, Let's talk about your practice a little bit and get into some of the techniques. Um, do you have a dedicated studio? And if so, is it in your house or where is it? Well, right now I am looking for studio space, but uh, there's uh, an organization that when I really need the space to do something um, will let me use a room in between the times that they have it scheduled for other people. So there have been times when I have worked after the last class and just work until daylight. Oh my gosh. Because it means that I have 
Well, see, it's a good thing because it's uninterrupted time because there's no one running around in the building and I can create my own little atmosphere and it works out really well. But I am looking for affordable studio space that in the winter does actually have heat. <laughs> because I told someone, you know, I'm done with the cold days in studio space because I had always had um, my apartment as my studio space, you know. So now I am um, living with my significant other, I guess you would say, who already has stuff in his house. And then here comes all my stuff. And so there's one room that I can work in, but I really need larger space because if you have dry processes and wet processes, you need to be able to separate them. And what I had to do was put away one totally in order to do the other one. So um, I'm, I'm checking out in the warmer weather um, some spaces. And uh, I have kind of one in mind, but I haven't gone to see it yet because my big thing is, do you have heat in the winter? So if I hear a pregnant pause on that question, I know what the answer is. So I've gotten one yes but they don't have an elevator. So if they put me on the third floor and I've got all this stuff, that might be a problem. So, you know, it's, it's coming. I'm just not sure how it's going to manifest. But in the meantime, you work with what you got. You do. But, but it does affect what you can make, the size of it mm -hmm. and other things. And like you said, storage is an issue. Yeah, well, I figured out how to get stuff stored. But I'm, I was kind of enjoying smaller work because I, I tend to make the size work for the space that I'm in. And when I'm able to do larger work, that's fine. You know. But um, I was in a show that went to South Africa. I was fortunate enough to have a piece selected. And I was one of 50 from the United States. And it was a show that was brought about after the death of Nelson Mandela. Mm. And so this show was part of the International Quilt Africa Conference. And the exhibition was called, um, well, it w I'll, I'll think of the name in a minute, but it was a, a textile tribute to Nelson Mandela. Consciousness, Conscience of the Human Spirit, The Life of Nelson Mandela was the title of the show. So um, the fact that I was selected meant in my mind that I should go, knowing I didn't have the money at the time. I held a fundraiser on my birthday, and I got half the money together, and the other half came from the fundraiser. So you actually got to go? I, I got to go. The show was in Johannesburg in a big uh, convention center, and uh, also went to Cape Town and Durban because it was a tour that was put together for those of us that were part of the partnering organization, Women of Color uh, Quilters Network, founded by uh, Carolyn Maslumi. And so we went, and we had a great time. I collected about 200 pairs of socks to be able to give away uh, to daycare centers that they did ask for us to bring things that could be donated. So 
I waged a little campaign, and I had so many socks that was just crazy. And um, so that was nice to have that humanitarian aspect of it. And South Africa was a place I'd always wanted to see because I loved the beadwork. Mm -hmm. <coughs> because the beadwork there is phenomenal. And I'm talking three-dimensional life-size things because I saw a statue of Nelson Mandela in a mall that was the height that he was. Mm and such intricate beadwork that the color from the top side of the hand to the palm changed, and it, it, it just mesmerized me. Mm. And yeah, I bought beaded jewelry for myself <laughs> and, and some souvenirs for friends, but those international-type experiences that I have had have also shaped who I am as an artist, especially because most of them were in the African diaspora before I ever got to Africa. So 2007, I went to Ghana for the 50th anniversary of independence celebration, which was an incredible time to be there. So you've done some traveling. Yeah, That's I have. Cool. I'm fortunate that I have had those experiences because they have all figured in to my art making because you can study a thing to death, but if you've not been to where those particular textile processes or cultural nuances began, your understanding is lacking. So I saw the pieces of the diaspora puzzle before I actually got back to the root. And when I got back to the root, I knew exactly what I was looking at. Mm -hmm. And they seemed pleased, <coughs> people that I met, that I had done some homework. Let's talk a little bit about the workshops that you give. Um, you've talked, you've given workshops that have involved some immigrants in West Philly. I think you've also given workshops with teens, pregnant women, mm -hmm. prisoners, prison population. I, those are very diverse populations and I'm wondering if you can just give an example of how you tailor yourself to fit your audience. Well, I guess I have to start with how that all began. You know, since I had always had an interest in culture and that which is produced from a culture, um, it was already kind of in my mind to want to work in that way. And during the time that the AIDS quilt that traveled nationally was happening, uh, Johnny Irizarry, who had been the director of Talier Puerto Ricano at the time, wanted to have a series of workshops that would allow people in uh, the barrios, as it's known, uh, the Latina community, to be able to create their own quilts to memorialize uh, their loved ones who had uh, died as a result of complications from AIDS. So it started there hmm. in about 1989, and that was the year after I had taken my first trip uh, to Bahia, Brazil. So there was a lot of stuff on my head from that trip. And um, I held a series of workshops that showed the participants how to do various kinds of surface design to convey a message. And that grew into an outreach um, set of workshops that happened twice at the Julia de Burgos 
middle school when it was around the corner from the Tayer's old location, because they now have a brand new spot that's gorgeous. And um, it was the AIDS subject matter as an educational tool that these middle school kids were creating um, an informational project for other people, including adults, you know? And at first I was nervous, you know, about that subject matter with kids. So I took a training, I had to take a training. Mm -hmm. And then the kids had to all bring back permission slips. And the things they turned out were just incredible. Mm -hmm. and, and there were about three or four wall hangings that I made out of their squares that were all uh, various surface design materials for them to convey their idea from their paper sketch. And they toured various health uh, facilities in the city at that time. Can you tell a little bit about what you mean when you say surface design? Well, surface design really is um, speaking about whatever you use to put color or imagery on cloth. So uh, fabric markers that are specially suited for cloth, um, dye pastels, which are basically crayons that have dye in a wax suspension. And um, of course, uh, those dyes that can be dissolved in water. Okay, so that's almost any, any almost other anything. Thing, yeah, except. That would exclude like woven designs woven into the fabric. Right, that's yeah. that's not um, that's not considered surface. kind of surface design that I'm talking about. Okay, that's a weaving process. So, it, have you taught men as well as women? I have, and most of these workshops come as a result of my involvement with some um, nonprofit organization that has an outreach arm, and much of that that you mentioned before came when I was in the outreach roster of the Perkins Center for the Arts in Morristown, New Jersey, that had a very strong outreach component. And they were focused on sending people to under-resourced and underserved communities. So much of what I did was within uh, the area of Camden, Pensalkin, and then had the good fortune to be recommended to do a series of workshops that lasted actually six years, going to Camden um, Correctional, Camden County Correctional Facility for 30 days each year and spending two days a week with uh, the population that was there. And since it's a two-year facility, these people are not there for more than that time. And because many of them might have become incarcerated with young children, I used um, my workshop opportunities there to create exercises that they could modify to help with the rebonding process mm -hmm. to these children who'd been left behind. Because if there's not someone in that family that's keeping the memory of that incarcerated parent alive, then it's harder to rebond. And if the child has been taken into the system, 
then these women have to jump through real serious hoops to get their children back. So my idea was to create a series of uh, design exercises that I could show them how to modify to connect with their children again through an artistic process. And they were really some of the better students out of most experiences I've had. And mm. it was the teaching experience that I grew in a different way from. Because mm. some artists that want to teach in prison, they want to do that, but they don't understand that when you walk through those doors and that door closes behind you, you're on that planet operating under their rules. So I found a way to be able to make my thing work within the confines of their rules, and they trusted me because um, I was able to get results. Who's they? When I say they, I'm talking about the, um, the prison administrators, and the warden at that time had art bones in his body, which is why I think it happened at all. And he was very supportive. And most anything that I wanted to do within the confines of, of my expression, I was able to do because I kept an account of everything. Whatever I brought in, I brought out. And I made those who were in the class who were, uh, there's always at least one or two people that are very helpful. They become the supply captains. So it becomes their responsibility to count out what's being distributed, and they're responsible for the count at the end of the class. Interesting. So it was a way to be able to not have to worry about something not reappearing because that responsibility was passed uh, to certain individuals mm. in, in the classes. So I worked with men and women general population first, and then I was with a special population in a second chance program where they had their own wing and they were separated from general population because they demonstrated they wanted to change their life and go through the substance abuse um, program. Fascinating. But I also worked in facilities here in Pennsylvania through the Pennsylvania Prison Society where um, Homer Jackson and Pat Finio were in charge of the Art and Humanities Department. So they were great people to work with. So uh, Pick out on State Road and uh, a couple of other facilities I was able to work in. And that's almost like a separate part of my um, teaching artist career because I no longer do that when the funding ran down for that. Mm. It's a shame. I mean, that the funding ran out. Yeah. What are you working on right now? I know you're going to be in a show in Art and City Hall coming up March 6th. Well, um, other than, and I'm still deciding what I'm going to put in that show. But um, right now, I am working in a project that is still in progress called Philadelphia Assembled. Oh, tell and me I about that. And I understand that you had uh, interviewed 
Jana Van Heijswick. I hope I am pronouncing her last name correctly. Close. And she is an artist from uh, the Netherlands who initiated this project with Philadelphia uh, Museum of Art. So together with loads of collaborators from across the city, the project is exploring Philadelphia's changing landscape to tell a story of um, community building and the challenges and inspirations of the city's changes. And what Philadelphia Assembled asks is how can we collectively shape our futures? So what's happening is artists, makers, storytellers, gardeners, healers, activists, and other kinds of community people um, are working together to explore social issues that resonate as they said, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. So uh, within this project, the concerns are organized around five principles. And these principles are, are known as atmospheres. So the atmosphere I'm connected with is called reconstructions, and it addresses how can we rewrite histories. Uh, the second one is sovereignty, which deals with how can we share resources. The third one is futures, how can we reimagine our tomorrow. Uh, The fourth one is sanctuary, how can we create safe spaces. And the fifth one is movement, how can we share knowledge. So all of that is, is in working progress right now, but the culmination of all of that work Um, will be in the spring of 2017 when Philadelphia Assemble will uh, present a series of community-based interactive projects, conversations, meals, my favorite thing, (laughs) installations and other events throughout the city. And um, the culmination The actual culmination will be in September of 2017 when a lot of that which will take place in the community, especially installation type things, will come back to the Perlman Building of the Philadelphia Museum of Art for display. So my project within Reconstructions will be to create a quilt that deals with... um, the Kensington area that's our focus, which is at 4th and Master Street. So I want to be able to combine old and new representations of Kensington by way of uh, imagery that is being selected now from various historical sources, from the library, and um, maps. I mean, it's it's still taking shape, but that's kind of the idea I have in mind. And all of those images will be digitally printed. On the cloth? On cloth, yeah. And um, there are two places that are being considered for that. And, um, you know, I don't want to put all that out there yet because it's all still being confirmed. But that's what my particular assignment within my atmosphere is 
and oh yeah, there's another woman, Mona Washington, who has written a little play. And several of us had a part in that when there was a, like a general Philadelphia Assembly meeting and we had a script and you know all of us were a part of that. So that will be performed in our atmosphere's neighborhood space. And there will be a structure built that will represent a house where people maybe no longer live because they've been displaced or because a building has been demolished. So there's another core of people within uh, Reconstruction who will be working on that. So my subcommittee that I'm part of is called Displacement because that's what it's dealing with. The other subcommittee is dealing with mass incarceration. So they will have their own set of, of things that will happen. Fascinating. You, you brought it to life really well. Um, I think we could go on and talk for another half hour, but I'm going to say I'm talking with Betty Leecraft. Betty, is there anything you want to say that we didn't touch on? Well, the one thing that I would like to acknowledge is um, the Color Girls Museum mm. that was founded by Vashti Dubois, who recently celebrated a birthday. Happy birthday, Vashti. And the fact that they're going to start up again in March, which will be like chapter two of uh, the current exhibit, which the overall title is um, A Good Night's Sleep. And A Good Night's Sleep talking about 400 years of restlessness of people of color and the, the seeking to find that comfort. And it's a three-story house, and they have stuff from top to bottom. It's, it's the best experience you'll ever have. And I'm also very pleased to say that I'll be doing a yearly uh, preschool presentation at the Wetherill School, which is that in, um, I believe, Gladwin, uh, where I will present Wearing Beauty Every Day for four- and five-year-olds which introduces them to the beauty of African textiles. And I bring textiles that are based on things they know about every day, shape, color, everyday objects, things in nature, and um, jewelry. I bring all of my South African jewelry, and that's on display. And we talk about what fabric means in your everyday life. I wrap a little girl with a lapa, which is the fabric that goes around the waist that hangs to the floor that kind of makes a skirt. I wrap a, a little girl's head with cloth, and I have a cap that I put on a little boy. And so we just have a really great time. And I'll, show, I'll actually teach them a couple of Zulu words because I went away to South Africa having had instruction from Godfrey Satole, who is an indigenous Zulu, and I could say four things really well when I was there. And that made a big difference in my trip hmm. because Zulu is not a common language in the world. And they have these clicks that I like. Can you, you know. do a click for us? Well, one that I can do, the, um, the group of people that Nelson Mandela was from, it's, it's spelled X-H-O-S-A. So most people say Hosa. 
and you and drop the X. But that the X in front of a word is a click. There's about nine or eleven different clicks, and that may be per language. So the one that I I did, or I'll sound like what it sounds like. Because there's a click that you do in the back of your mouth, at the top of your palate, behind your teeth, in the sides of your mouth. So the one behind your teeth, most African-American women can do that because if something gets on your nerves and you you know, it's like a sucking motion. And, and there's usually some kind of... Um, head gesturing that might go with it. It's a pretty universal thing that all black women know. So when I told the women there that all black women here could do that one, and then I told them what it was for, and I did, they just fell out, you know? So there's some connection in everything, and that's what I look for when I travel, is, is what is the connecting thread between us all. That's really great. Thank you so much, Betty, for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, because we'd have needed an hour to